Good morning. The reading for today's sermon will come from Psalm 77, and we'll be reading from verses 1 through 9. Psalm 77. To the choir master, according to Jeduthun, a psalm of Asaph. I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. Selah. You hold my eyelids open. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. I consider the days of old, the years long ago. I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. Then my spirit made a diligent search. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? You may be seated. Will you pray with me? Our gracious God and Father, We exalt you. We exalt you as the high and lifted up one. We exalt you as the the all-sufficient one, the necessary one, the one from whom and to whom and through whom are all things, the one who upholds all things by the word of your power. And Father, I come now before my brothers and sisters and before friends and visitors who are here today, and we all come, Lord, with, with various thorns, We come with thorns in the flesh. We come in need and in weakness. And so, Father, I come asking that your spirit would be outpoured upon myself and upon my brothers and sisters through this, your word in Psalm 77. Please stand by me and strengthen me that the word of God might be fully known. And may you open our eyes to behold wondrous things from your word. Namely, your Son, the Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, it's a sincere privilege to be with you today and to stand by, behind this pulpit and to bring the Word of God and hopefully a word of great encouragement to your hearts. This, this psalm has been a word of great encouragement to me over this, this last season, and so the things that I I preached, have been preached from Asaph to me many times, and I hope they'll land upon your heart in a similar way of exhortation and strength and encouragement. And as we begin our consideration of the text today, I want to ask two series of of questions. And the first goes like this. What is the greatest trial in your life? What is that thing that you wish you could just snap your fingers and have it go away? 
What is maybe that thing that you've cried out to God about countless times? Perhaps you felt like you heard no answer. If you're not in, in such a day of trouble, what, what would that thing be? What would those, those fears be? What do you fear might occur in your life? The second set of questions is, begins like this. What can you do about that thing? Man was made for sorrow as the sparks fly upward. That's just the way life in this world is. It's a fallen world. It's sin-cursed. We deal with various trials, as, as James says. So what can we do in the day of trouble? What can we do in great trials? What can we do in repeated trials? What will be our way out? What will be our coping strategy? And I want to submit to you that there are a few strategies that we could turn to that, that are not going to be effective or God-glorifying. And the first I think we see in the world, and that would, be, that would be this, that would be a groundless optimism. We've all, we've all heard it. We've all heard, don't worry, things will get better tomorrow. Don't worry, they're in a better place. I'm sure things will improve. And when I hear these things, I just want to say, on, on what basis do you assume those improvements? Right? But that is, a, that is a common way of dealing with these issues in the world. As Christians, we may be less tempted to, to that type of strategy because we're just a more realistic people. We understand that trials go on. We, we look in the pages of Scripture. We look amongst our brothers and sisters, perhaps at a prayer meeting. We see in our own lives that trials do not just simply go away because we wish them away. And so we might be tempted in a few other ways, and one would be a despairing hedonism. And that, that sounds hard on our ears, but at the end of the day, that's, that's what occurs when we go to something other than God in the midst of our trial, when we go to fleeting pleasures, when we misuse God's gifts for the sake of coping with the pressure and the pain that we're under. And so I think at the root of many of our temptations, as I look in, in my own heart and maybe as you look in your heart, you'll find that a temptation to lust, a temptation to an excessive use of alcohol, a temptation to uh, relying on entertainment and diversion may come from the fact that we've forsaken the fountain of living waters in that moment. We've forsaken the sense of his nearness, and we've looked to a broken cistern that can hold no water to cope with our distress. And we know that, that those are worthless idols. They can do nothing for us at the end of the day. And so we, just like our unbelieving neighbors, might be tempted to go to an idol for the sake of coping with those things that most trouble us. Another, another strategy, if you want to call it that, that, that we may be tempted to would be just a draining anxiety. We're hit with wave after wave after wave of trial. Either it's a single trial that just wears on us, or it's a series of trials that hammer us and hammer away at the foundations upon which we stand. 
And if it's that, that one big trial, we may find that our life vitality is totally drained out. It's all that we can think about. And our usefulness and our ability to glorify the Lord in our lives is, is taken from us. And if it's that, that constant low-level hum, we may just become so consumed with, with ourselves. We're, we're so consumed with a trial coming, we respond in anxiety, turn in on ourselves and forget that there are people around us who need our gifts and need our graces that the Lord has given to us. So none of those strategies are particularly helpful. But what I'd like to submit to us today from Psalm 77 is that in Psalm 77 we find a faithful response, a faithful strategy to coping with and glorifying God in those things which most trouble us. Something that I realized as I, I studied this passage over the last few months is that although we look at Asaph here and he is in the day of trouble, he is likely in one of those massive trials that some of you may be in today. Although he is, he is there, that doesn't mean that this has nothing to say for us who are in those smaller and more repeated trials. You could think about it like this. If a man can free dive to 50 feet, come back up safely, for those of us who are continuously diving 10 feet under and coming back up and 10 feet under and coming back up, that man who can dive 50 feet, who can dive down 50 feet and come back up safely, he has something to say to us. So regardless of whether we're in the day of trouble, regardless of whether we're in a massive trial today, Asaph has something to say to us. And ultimately, the thing that, that he will say to us, and by principle as new covenant believers, the, the idea and the strategy that will be communicated to us is that the nearness and power of the God who walks with us in Christ will be seen as our all-sufficient help in all of our trials. Now, as we consider the text in verses 1 through 4, we find Asaph ceaselessly seeking God in trouble. He's constant in his prayer. He's constant in his supplication. He's looking to the one who can rescue him from his trial. He says this, I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. He comes with confidence, believing that God will give an answer to his prayer. And we may see in a moment that the answer to the prayer comes, but it may not have been in the way that Asaph expected. In any case, we see something of Asaph's noble spirit that is instructive to us here, that when it is the day of trouble for us, when we are faced with a trial, the thing that we ought to do is to seek God and his favor and his grace and his help. He is the one who can help us, unlike those worthless idols, unlike those broken cisterns. Matthew Henry says this, In the day of trouble, he did not seek for the diversion of business or recreation to shake off his trouble that way, but sought God and his favor and his grace. So Asaph is going to the right place. 
In the day of trouble, he's seeking the Lord. In the night, his hand is stretched out without wearying. So it's a day and night seeking of the God who he knows hears him. And we see he's, he's so intense in his supplication that he physically reaches out for the refuge of his weary soul. He says, in the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. So although he, he reaches and although he prays and prays and prays and it's constant, he finds no comfort. His soul refuses to be comforted. In fact, when he remembers God, he moans. And when he meditates, his spirit faints. Although he turns his whole soul towards God, towards the one who can rescue him, he seems to receive no answer, no rescue. He's like a man on the surface of the water, treading water, about to sink, and he's reaching out for a life preserver. And this life preserver that he reaches out for is prayer. But for some reason, in this moment, it doesn't work. He even attributes to God, in verse 4, the holding open of his eyelids. He says, you hold my eyelids open. I'm so troubled that I cannot speak. We talked about that draining anxiety a moment ago, and that's exactly where we find Asaph. He actually believes that God is sovereign in this moment, that God is the one who, at the microscopic level, is holding his eyelids open, not allowing him to sleep, not even allowing him the gift of a good night's rest. And now he's crying. He had been crying out to God, but now he's so troubled that he can't speak. He has been totally drained of vitality. And so he's, he's tried prayer. He's tried seeking God in the day of his trouble. But again, that's been a life preserver that hasn't seemed to work. And so the next thing that he tries, we'll see this in verses 5 through 9, is he tries the life preserver of remembrance. He says this, I consider the days of old, the years long ago. I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. Then my spirit made a diligent search. This, this phrase, the song in the night, is an, is an interesting one. It may not mean what we think it means. So I, I want to allow Derek Kidner to define this phrase for us. He says that the song in the night is probably not a song in the night, like a, a song that he's singing in the night as he cries out to God. But instead, it's one remembered in the night from happier days. So think back on the best season of your life. What was that time like? Maybe you have even gave manifestation to your joy through song or through a poem or through writing something. However, that is, that's exactly what Asaph is doing here. And it, it makes sense. He's the choir master of Israel. So he, he wrote a song of praise, perhaps to God, perhaps just something recounting the goodness of God's gifts. And so he tries to remember that song. And so what we have to ask ourselves is, is that an effective strategy? In the night, when we find ourselves in the day of trouble, is it helpful for us 
to look back and say how good things used to be. And if the text is any indication, it's not effective. It's not helpful. Because what do we find Asaph doing next? In verses 7 through 9, we find him raising questions in what I would call an experience-centered desolation. He's, he's raising this series of questions which question the goodness of God, and it's experience-centered because his remembrance of his own experience and his focus on his own experience have led him to begin interpreting who God is through the lens of his experience. And so it forces him to this place where he asks these questions of God, asks these doubting questions. Have you ever been there? Have you ever been so pressed in by a trial? And I say, have you ever? Of, of course you have. You're alive in this world like I'm alive in this world. It probably happened this week. Have you ever asked the question, is God good? Because of, because of what's happening to me right now, because of what's occurring in my life, because of what I am going through, is God really for me? And that's where we find Asaph here. He asks this, this just absolute staccato of questions in verses 7 through 9. He says, will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Is God's grace just completely ceasing to operate in my life for all time? Do you ever feel like that in a trial? You may have even been through numerous trials. You might have been through a hundred trials. David, David in one of the Psalms says, when God rescues him, I will lift the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. So that's, that's a man after he's been delivered in the right place saying, you know what I'm going to continue to do in light of this rescue? I'm going to continue to lift up and ask for God's grace. And, and many of us have been there in our lives. We understand what it's like to be delivered over and over and over again. But when we're pressed into a fresh trial, it feels like it will never end. And that's where Asaph is here. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? He goes on in verse 8 and says this, Has his steadfast love forever ceased? One man said that all you need to know to live a happy life is to know the nearness and love of God. Asaph is experiencing the opposite He says, are his promises at an end for all time? What's the most precious Bible promise to you? Can you imagine living one day or one week or one month without that? Or how about this? When you get in that place of trial in the day of trouble, do you question whether that promise is not for you? There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Does that feel like that's not for you in the day of trouble? He works all things together for good for them that love him. Do you feel like that's not for you in the day of the trial? That's where Asaph's experience has driven him. It's driven him to a place of questioning whether the promises of God 
are for him. And then he, he takes a little bit more of a relational bent in verse 9, where he says this. He says that maybe God is passively against him, and then maybe God is actively against him. In verse 9, he says, has God forgotten to be gracious? Is God in the middle of the day of trouble just totally indifferent to me? Has he just forgotten me? Am I not important to him any longer? And some of us know what that's like. Some of us know what that's like in the midst of a relationship horizontally with another human just to feel forgotten. Why does that person not check in on me more? Why is that person not trying to be as close with me as they were before? And that can be a painful thing. But to feel that dynamic between you and God just ramps that up to a whole other level. And if that's the case, if, if someone's being passively, seemingly passively said against you, how much worse is it when you know that they're angry with you? When the person who's, who's closest to you in your life, your closest friend, the one to whom you look for support and help, is angry with you. It turns your world upside down, and that's where Asaph is here in verse 9. Asking, has God in anger actually shut up his compassion towards me? Am I in the middle of this trial because God is angry with me? Not even in a disciplinary way, not in a way of, I understand God's fatherly love and disciplinary care for me, but just, is he pure wrath and anger towards me? So what we find is that Asaph's attempt in, attempts in verses 5 through 6 to remember the past, that, that life preserver that he reached for has actually proved to be a lead weight that's attached itself to him and dragged him underneath the surface of the water, ripped him several meters down, and now he's drowning. So his strategies have apparently not worked. If this is the case for Asaph in the day of trouble, and if this may be the case for us when we, when we attempt these strategies, when we attempt to cry out to God, when we attempt to remember how good things were in the former days, if, if this is the outcome, then what can be done? Thankfully, in, in verses 10 through 20, Asaph and the Holy Spirit through Asaph gives us the answer, and that's the answer of God-centered remembrance. The answer for us in our day of trouble is the answer of God-centered remembrance. This is what begins to reverse his trajectory. In verse 10, he says, Rather than... Let me remember my song in the night. He says, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. This is another unique phrase. And so we're going to go to Matthew Henry to have him define it for us. He says this, he had been considering the blessings formerly enjoyed, that was 
the blessings that, that caused him to sing the song in the night or, or the song that he was remembering in the night, better put. He had been considering the blessings formerly enjoyed, the remembrance of which did only add to his grief. But now he considered them as the years of the right hand of the Most High, that those blessings from ancient times came from the ancient of days, from the power and sovereign disposal of his right hand. And so, rather than looking at his experience and thinking about how good things were and questioning the goodness of God, instead he turns his mind to see the goodness of the God that was behind all of those good things. And so for us today, sitting here on this side of the cross as Christians, we can say this. The same goodness and love of God that put the Lord Jesus on the cross on our behalf, that same goodness and love of God that redeemed us when we were in rebellion to him, that same goodness and love of God that did both of those things is still operating for us in our day of trouble. Whatever you find yourself in today, whatever circumstance you're in, whatever may come, child of God, the favor of God is never pulled back from you. Romans 8.32 says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? That favor and grace which began to be manifested towards us at the cross goes from then into eternity. He never changes in his favor towards you. You're in Christ. You have every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies, in Christ Jesus, no matter where you find yourself today, no matter where you find yourself in the future. Asaph continues this, this act of what I would call extrospective renewal, right? He's looking outside of himself. He continues that act by remembering the deeds of the Lord and then repeating that in verse 11, I will remember your wonders of old. So what we may, may not be able to see, what we cannot see in our English translations, is that that first remember in verse 11 is a public act of remembrance. He's committing himself to praise God in public. And I think there's something, again, noble and instructive for us in that, that when we're in the day of trouble, even when we're in a small trial, what we ought to do is look outside of ourselves Look to our brothers and sisters and speak of the goodness of God, to speak of his character, to speak of his mighty deeds, to speak of what he's done in history. And sometimes when, when we're in the day of trouble, we, we want to avoid fellowship. And there's something, there's something natural and normal to, to grieve and be low and, and separate yourself and deal with the Lord in that time but there ought to be a turning back towards fellowship, a turning back towards speaking truth to others, to having our gifts utilized as Asaph, the choir master here, utilizes his gifts to encourage us 3,000, essentially 3,000 years later. Side note, Asaph had prayed in verses 
1 and 2, he had been seeking the Lord, and it didn't seem that he found an answer. But I think what we may be able to infer, as I, as I thought through this text, what we may be able to infer is that God has answered his prayer, just not in the way that Asaph had hoped. Asaph had hoped to be snatched out of the day of trouble, and sometimes the Lord does that to us. But what, what God does for Asaph here is he opens his eyes to behold wondrous things from God's word in the midst of his trouble. He gives him something indestructible, completely durable, something that cannot change, something that does not depend on circumstances, something that cannot be taken away from him, no matter what. And so we don't hear anymore for the rest of the psalm about the day of trouble. We just hear about Asaph and his God because his God has answered him and has shown him his character, his mighty deeds, and totally reoriented his focus. He goes on in verse 12, I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Verse 13, your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? One commentator says this about this phrase, that your way, O God, is holy. He says, his conduct, that is God's conduct, his proceedings, however strange and mysterious it may seem to us, is always holy, in other words, just and right. What a comfort it is to know in the day of trouble that the God with whom we deal, the God who is our Father, is the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Everything that he brings into our lives is just and right and good. He can't be tempted by evil and he tempts you with no evil, with no sin. He's only good in the circumstances that he brings even in the day of trouble. And not only is he good, not only is he holy, but he is greater than any. What God is great like our God? He is a power that none can compare to. And he's using that power in the midst of your day of trouble, combined with his holiness, combined with his goodness, to work all things together for your good. Asaph goes on to say in verse 14, You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. You with your right arm, you with your arm, redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. So what we see encapsulated here is that God is a revelatory God. God is a God who makes himself known. As I prayed earlier, God is the one from whom, to whom, and through whom are all things. God is the one who must glorify himself in his universe, and he does. But the amazing thing is that in his self-glorification, what he seeks to do is also to benefit sinful and weak people. He makes known his might among the peoples by, in this context, with Asaph. Asaph's looking back at the Exodus by, by redeeming his people, the children of Jacob and Joseph, which is just another way of saying the people of Israel. 
And when we really think about it, it's amazing because those Israelites didn't add anything to God's resume. Deuteronomy 7.7 says this. This is God speaking. It was not because you, that is you, nation of Israel, were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. God chose the weakest, the least, the least impressive. Only a good God does that. And we can understand this on this side of the cross in an even more profound way. And that's because our rap sheet isn't that just as the church were the least of all the people. Our rap sheet is that we were enemies of God. While we were enemies, Christ died for us. If while we were enemies, Christ died for us, what a testimony to us of the goodness of God on our behalf. And if Christ would die for his enemies, how will he treat us now that we're his, his brothers? He's not ashamed to call us brothers. Another amazing thing about this concept of redemption in verse 15 is that that, that word redeem relates to the concept of a kinsman redeemer. Derek Kidner says this, these are thy people, where uh, Asaph says, you redeemed your people. Kidner is saying, these are thy people, joined to God in covenant and virtually his kinsmen. This is the common implication of the word redeem, since the Redeemer was normally the one who must buy one out of trouble when all else failed. So what we see is that God is a God who not only saves his people, he's not only a God who rescues people from trouble, both temporal and eternal, by his hand. He actually comes down and identifies with his people. And he does so most preeminently so, as I mentioned a moment ago, in the new covenant as the Lord Jesus, who is tempted in every way as we are. And so he's able to help us in all of our temptations. So in the day of trouble, we have a God who has given his son for us. And we have our elder brother, the Lord Jesus, who's there with mercy and grace to help in time of need in all of our temptations and all of our trials. Asaph begins to close the psalm in verses 16 through 20 by focusing in on a snapshot of the Exodus. And he, just like you would expect a choir master would, he uses this extremely poetic language to capture the event. He, he uses personification. He personifies the elements. He says this in verse 16. When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. 
Your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. And if we were just to take that, take verses 16 through 18 at at face value, that may or may not be good news for anyone. That might just be a powerful and aloof deity up in the heavens having a fireworks show. It's just a raw display of power. But thankfully, we have verses 19 and 20. And so these are not only acts of God's power in verses 16 through 18, but acts of his nearness with his people. Asaph pictures Yahweh walking through the sea with his people. Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. There's a mysterious providence at work here. There was a mysterious providence at work amidst the people of Israel, just as there's a mysterious providence at work in each of our lives. God is the God who walks with us, though his footprints are unseen. And Asaph finishes by saying, you led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. He didn't leave them alone. He left them with with mediators. He left them with those that could sympathize with them, that could guide them. Now, what about for us? We have the Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, leading us, guiding us, helping us in all of the trials, all of the troubles, all of the temptations that we face. What I'd like to do now in closing, just to potentially frame up our minds a little bit more appropriately as New Covenant believers, is, is make what I share what I would call a New Covenant paraphrase of verses 16 through 20. So this is, this is totally uninspired. Obviously, I wrote it. Um, but I hope it's just a helpful, it's a helpful way for us to remember who God is for us in Christ, what he's done on our behalf in history, and to remember that that's the down payment of all of God's goodness and all of God's guidance from now until eternity. And so if you're looking at your Bible, as I read, you might kind of see I tried to match some of the words and the phrasing, and it was my best shot, okay? Um, Verses, so we'll start thinking uh, about verse 16 and thinking that this is beginning with Jesus on the cross. And obviously there are thing, other things that we can recount. We can recount the life of Christ, the miracles, all of the different things that God has done in redemption. But just here now, thinking about Jesus on the cross, we'll begin. When the sky saw him, that is Jesus, and when the sky saw your wrath, it went dark. Indeed, the earth trembled. Your sun poured out blood. The skies gave forth justice. His enemies were arrayed on every side. It is finished, was carried by the wind. Your love lighted up the world. The tomb received the sun. His way was through death. 
his path through the great stone. By 500, he was seen. You lead your people like a flock by the hand of this Christ. Dear Christian, I don't know what's going on in your life today. I know, well, I know what's going on in some of your lives today. I don't know what's going to face you in the years to come, in the days to come. There are many fears that can trouble us, plague us, crush us in this life. But what I do know is that there's a Christ who died for you. There is a God in heaven who made the down payment of his goodness from now until eternity by giving the blood of his son. And not only did he do that, but today you have a Christ who walks with you, your great shepherd, equipping you in your day of trouble that you may be able to glorify God in the deepest waters. Will you pray with me? Our great God and Father, we thank you. We thank you for this word of perseverance, this word of endurance, this word of equipping, this word of strengthening. We thank you for the ways that you're working in each heart now through your word. And I pray, Father, that this would prove to be a loved text, a text that would be helpful to go back to again and again in the day of trouble and in every trial so that we can know your nearness and power in all our straits. In Jesus' name, amen.